Good to be up here a third week in a row. Uh, however, I said to Pete this morning, I certainly feel the weight when, uh, when he is preaching uh, numerous times in a row. Uh, I probably felt most of the weight of that this week. Uh, when things go on in your week and uh, there's less time that you expected to be able to prepare a sermon, um, it's, it's just a, it's a fair weight. So I uh, just wanted to uh, say thanks to Pete because uh, he's handled most of that burden uh, most of the time through the project so far. So uh, it's all right. it's, uh, it, it would be right to honour him in that way. Uh, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6 today. Uh, the last two weeks, uh, if you haven't been here, the last two weeks uh, I've been preaching out of 1 Peter, which talks a lot about men and it talks a lot about wiz- women, but in particular as a husband and as a wife. Um, and I've really tried to shape, somehow shape, uh, what it is, a biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood, uh, but also of a husband and a wife. And um, it was a good challenge for me and uh, a really healthy reminder for me to come back to that and uh, to prepare it um, in helping to reshape some of, uh, some of the things that I probably needed to change and improve on. And here at the project, we're really, really uh, strong on the fact that we need good men and quality men within the church who are going to take responsibility. In fact, uh, we had the 30 on Friday night, and uh, we, we believe it so passionately that we sat around at the 30 and challenged each other. How are we actually going to love our wives and honour our wives the way that the Bible calls us to? Um, and had a really great night, but challenging night, um, setting and casting a vision that's much greater than just, I love my wife, uh, that's much, much greater than just... Uh, just being married together and having kids together. Um, it's, a, it's a much larger vision. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6 and then we'll get right into it. Uh, if you've got it there, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 to 4. <clears throat> it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I've entitled today's message, uh, The Family, A Hub for the Gospel. And in particular, uh, we're going to get get to it right at the end, but in particular, uh, men are primarily responsible for their families. We've talked in the last two weeks, and I talked specifically about men and husbands being primarily responsible uh, for their wife and for loving their wife and honouring their wife, cherishing and nourishing their wife. And, uh, and in the same way, the Bible seems to call fathers to do the same job because it speaks very specifically in this uh, scripture to fathers and their role and their responsibility in the family um, for raising their children. Uh, it's interesting the Bible uses analogies a whole lot, doesn't it? The Bible uses analogies all the time. And the analogy that uh, we've, I've developed over the last two weeks for marriage is that it's actually meant to point towards Christ and his relationship to the church. Christ being, being this magnificent husband who comes and who sacrifices his life and lays down his life out of deep love for his wife, the church, and his bride, the church. And somehow that that would come about and he'd be able to present this bride beautiful and perfect because he's been working all the way through this bride's life called the church and uh, he's been working to make her this beautiful masterpiece that one day he would present her blameless, spotless, beautiful, like a bride walking in on a wedding day in a perfect white, in a, in a perfect white gown with perfect makeup on, looking absolutely perfect. 
that's the way Christ want to, uh, wants to present his church. And he, uh, he does that. And it could actually be said about working relationships as well. When we go to work and when somebody uh, is in authority over us, uh, the way that the Bible uses the analogy is uh, it's actually meant to point toward God as a gracious and merciful master in heaven. And that we're actually his people and as his people we're like slaves who don't work to get into his kingdom but instead work hard because we're in his kingdom. So you get this analogy again of a master and a slave and here's how the master treats a slave and how the slave treats the master. And then it continues on and where we get to today about family. Uh, God's design was the parents would model authority that would ultimately teach us not to live for ourselves but to live under and point to the authority of God as something that's life-giving and rich with blessing. So having a happy family isn't the end. That's not the ultimate end. That's not the ultimate point. Having a family that doesn't have any issues, that's not the ultimate point. Being good parents, that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is that it would point to, man, we get to live in submission and under the authority and the rule of God. And his rule is great. His rule is something to delight in and something to come under because we love it, not because we get dragged into it. And he's like a, you know, a dictator. He's just shoving it down our neck, making us do everything. No, no, no. His rule is gracious. His rule is loving. And we've got to get into that today. It doesn't take long to survey people around and ask them about family life to know that there's a great deal of problem with people and their relationships. I've started a uh, unit this term in Christian studies. I'm a teacher here at the school as well. And, uh, and in this unit, we're looking at families. And, uh, and what, are, what is a family? Because our current uh, and our modern definitions of family are getting very much twisted and manipulated, even right now, in media, in uh, politics. The, the definition of family is getting messed up. And uh, I thought, man, this is such an important area. And as I asked the students, and I said, listen, what's your family like? How do, you, how do you deal with sin? When somebody sins against you, what do you do? What happens, uh, what, what's family life like? Is there lots of arguments? And everyone puts their hands up. Yeah, lots of arguments. <laughs> well, most people did. What do you do to have fun and enjoy each other's company? Some were like, no, nah, we don't do anything. We, we just have nothing. Uh, other people are like, yeah, we have movies and we do all sorts of things. It doesn't take long to realise that I've only got a small class. It's like six students. And even within that six students, I've got one student who is, uh, his parents have split. He lives with mum and stepdad and has stepbrothers and sisters um, and doesn't really like dad all that much. Uh, has a pretty messed up relationship with his dad. You look at statistics. That's what we were doing Friday, looking at the statistics, the Australian statistics for single-parent families, and it is high, and it's on the increase. Statistically, over the last few years and over the last few census, uh, this, uh, this having one single-parent families is on the increase. So ma men and women, uh, husbands and wives are divorcing, and it has massive effects on children. And so it's somehow, within the church, we actually need to reflect and redeem this thing of family. We actually need to bring it back to what God intended and what God's design was for it. Uh, coming back to the problem, the great problem, whether it be a husband and wife, parents and children, or a brother or sister, things can get messy real quick. Here at the project, one of the foundational beliefs, other than that Jesus is God and Saviour, is that uh, the Bible tells us that the core human condition for every person sitting here today, whether you are a parent, whether you are a child, whether you are single and not married, uh, the, the core problem with every person sitting here today is sin. 
When children behave badly, there could be a number of contributing factors. And here, this is interesting as a teacher because we get uh, this massive children. Obviously, at a school, you have massive children. And within that spectrum, you've got kids who are coming from Christian homes, kids who are coming from not Christian homes, uh, kids who have been labelled with all sorts of labels, ADHD, um, but like the, the list goes on and on. And yes, some of those are really helpful in actually teaching kids and doing, doing what we need to, uh, to get right, to, to, to help them the best way, to teach them the best that we can. But I think uh, in the wrong way, these labels tend to be excuses for sin. This kid's not doing the right thing, so let's give him a label so that we can get funding so that we can help him out. Well, no, actually, you probably need to go a little bit deeper than that. And this is where what we believe at the project here uh, is that children at their core are sinful. So the core of every human, every human person is that uh, we're sinful. Unless you get to the core, all we ever do is modify behavior. In a similar way, when parents behave badly, when parents behave badly, parents, we behave badly. <laughs> Give me a nod if you agree. Yes, we behave badly. <laughs> We don't treat our children the way we're meant to. When parents behave badly, there could be a number of contributing factors, but at the core is sin. Contributing factors, I'm tired. Man, I'm just stuffed. Kids have been keeping me awake all night. Uh, man, I'm just busy. We've got work. We've got commitments. We're going to athletics. We're going to footy training. We're doing this. We're doing that. It's just busy. That's why I went off with my kids just now. Uh, there, there could be a whole bunch of contributing factors, and that doesn't mean they're not contributing factors. <laughs> But at its core, at the root, we need to get right down to the root. Tear out the weeds so that we can deal with it properly. Uh, the ultimate, this, this ultimately is a problem in all relationships over all time. And accepting this fact, fact in the end is the most liberating depending on where you go after you accept it. And in comes the gospel. When you realize that you are a sinful person at your core, that every person has this tendency to be an enemy of God. God? I don't want you. I actually want to do this my way. Every person sitting here today is proud. Every person sitting here today uh, has this deep issue of sin. But when you realize it, it can be really liberating. And you realize that you're helpless. You've got nowhere to go except to God. And this is the gospel. We're going to get right to that uh, and hopefully see some application. There's always, uh, there's always a few temptations as a parent when you're building a family culture. I think... Uh, one of them is a reactionary approach. As a parent, you want to do what you thought your parents did well, right? But you also work hard not to do what, they, what you think they didn't do well or what you didn't like about what they did. You go, oh, I didn't like that. I'm going to give my kids everything because my parents gave me nothing. <laughs> I've heard that, man, how many times? Or I'm going to do this because my parents didn't do this for me. Uh, this becomes like a reaction that will tend to find you pushing towards the very opposite extreme of your parents. And in the end, it may be just as damaging to your children as the extreme that they went to, okay? Because of their sin, because of their, uh, the issues that they had. And so you see these two extremes going on. Uh, and then the other one, I think, is uh, the inherent approach. Before I get to the inherent approach, this may be right, when you see things that your dad did do or that your mum did do that weren't right, yeah, it's right that you would work hard at correcting that, that you would depend upon the grace of God to change you so that you would be uh, doing it well, okay? Um, so it may actually be right. Uh, I've spoken to uh, somebody and 
And in talking to them, their dad just abused them physically. Abused them, whipped them, uh, verbally abused them, manipulated them. So for that dad, his job would be right in saying, I'm not doing what my dad did. I've got to do what's right. <laughs> I've got to change this, fa this family uh, line up here. The inherent approach. Here's another thing. As I uh, talked to a mate one time, and he was about to have a kid, I said, so, how are you going preparing to be a dad? And he's like, oh, no, no, that'll be right. It'll just come. Like, we'll just have this kid. It'll be fine. No worries. And so it's inherent. Somehow being a parent, being a dad or being a mum is inherent. You just have this laid-back attitude, and it can't be that hard. We can work it out as we go. And I think at best, this may do a good job. It actually may do an okay job. But it won't actually fulfill the bigger, bigger picture that God's actually wanting, the bigger picture that God designed, because it takes some time. So instead, uh, what I think would be healthy would be to have a renewed mind. So it doesn't matter how good your parents were, they were imperfect. And there are things that should change in the way that you do it. And so instead of just having this reactionary or this inherent approach, you actually come to God and say, God, renew my mind. Help me to take the good things that my parents did and implement them really well. Help me to uh, have a transformed mind so that I can see what you're calling me to as a parent and that I would actually uh, implement that in my life. So let's get right into it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. <clears throat> the primary aim of a parent, the primary aim of a parent is not for your children to obey you. That's not your primary aim. It can become your primary aim. Uh, I'm a dad of almost three years, and I've got two little girls, and, man, I'm delighted with my little girls. I just love my little girls. But there are times in my uh, fatherhood where, uh, in loving my girls, I actually want them to obey me, and that becomes this ultimate. And ultimately, it has this selfish desire behind it. We're going to talk about those desires in a minute. It's not actually for them to love you primarily. Your goal as a parent isn't actually for them to love you, your children to love you. Instead, God wants to uh, set, set the standard. We come to this issue of authority because obedience means there actually has to be authority. It, may, it means there has to be someone in authority. And this, is, this has been the core issue from the very beginning for every person sitting here. And I, I want to... I just don't want to miss people because uh, we're talking about family here. I don't want to miss people um, and the way that God actually deals with all people in this respect. But when we come to authority, um, it, our culture doesn't like it. We don't like it because inherently we want to be enemies of God. We don't want to submit to God. We don't want to accept that he, is, he has a loving rule over our lives. We actually uh, want to be enemies of God by doing what we want to do the way we want to do it instead of having a transformed heart and renewed mind. And you see this in children. I mean, it doesn't take long. We've all been children before. And, uh, and if you have children, you see it in children. I don't want to do things the way you want to do it. I want to do things this way. And so they start this negotiation thing where, come on, you know, if I do it this way, or maybe can I just have this instead? And so uh, in comes this negotiation. And the authority of God was never was never meant to be uh, distorted, but it has become that. Come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32 and 33. If you've got your Bible there, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32 and 33. And it says this, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. 
You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Every person here wants to live long. We don't want our lives to be cut short. Every person here wants to live. We don't actually want to die. And so these, these blessings come and God's pretty explicit here. I want you to listen to me. I want you to worship me and submit to my loving rule and authority. And when you do, man, it is going to go well for you. You're going to live long. You're going to live in my land and it's going to be a blessing for you. But if you stray for that, from that, it's not going to go well. So Moses has just listed the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Ten Commandments. Love God. Honor God. Have no other gods before me. And he lists them off. And then he comes to this very point at the end for all people. Because that includes children, honor your father and mother, right? And it will go well with you and you'll live long in the land. But, uh, but he comes to everybody. Because everybody actually needs to come under the authority of God. Not because it's a drag. Not because God is this dictator God who tells you, you need to do this, you need to do that. Otherwise I'll punish you. No, no, no. I love you. Here are the things that I've set up for you so that this life that you're living right now will go the very best that it could go. So rules and and boundaries, the things that, that God's put in place, they're because he loves us. Because he knows that without them, it's not going to go well. It becomes chaotic. That's the very reason he put these rules in place, the commands. So that it wouldn't be chaos anymore. That his family, this society, this new society of people called Israel would come and they'd actually be living together and working together. But if they turned their back, they, could live, they couldn't live long in God's land and they were actually, uh, actually thrown out. If they discarded it, there's going to be judgment and punishment. But as they welcomed the rule of God, there'd be blessing. And so here's the primary aim. As parents, we're actually meant to point them to delight in Loving, obeying and submitting to Jesus and his rule and authority. Not because they have to, but because you love to. You as a dad, you as a mum, you love being under the rule and authority of Jesus. You love submitting to him. It's challenging. You sin. You do the wrong thing. But you come back to Jesus because you love his rule and authority. And that's actually what we hand on to our children. It's the very decision that Adam and Eve made ultimately against God and for Satan right at the beginning. Satan brought into question, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to submit to? Are you going to submit to God? Because he said you can have everything except the fruit of this one tree. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. Satan comes in and questions God. Do you really want to listen to God? Do you really think he's got everything in for you? Do you really think he loves you that much? Why don't you listen to me? You might have had friends who've said that to you. Do you really want to go that way? Do you really want to listen to God? Do you really want to go to church on a Sunday? What a waste of time. The question is, are you really seeing how loving and how amazing the rule of God is and his authority in your life? Think about, uh, before we get there, authority plus sin equals distortion, abuse, neglect, and selfish dictatorship, doesn't it? Neglect, because sometimes uh, people see authority and they're freaked out, out by it, so they step away from it. Dads, I think this is a tendency for dads. 
I want to be my, my friends with my children, so I don't want to spank them. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to discipline them. So I'm just going to work out how I can be friends with them and stay friends with them. And so they step away from authority. Or they take authority and they take power. And they become abusive and dictator, dictatorship-wise. And it becomes messy. So authority plus sin, equals, it, it just gets distorted. And that's exactly what happened at the start. Because God's authority, right in the very beginning, man, there was nothing better than to be living under the authority and the rule of God. And it got distorted and things got really messed up. Think about how it plays out in families. If you live for yourself and rule for yourself, it ends in disaster and conflict, not just for you, but the people around you. Instead, the family is a place where we learn to live with other people who are different from us and learn how to love and serve them, even with their differences. Authority was never meant to be what power and make, uh, sorry, to be about power and making rules so you can assert your power. It was never meant to be selfish. In fact, authority was a really healthy thing that God had in place. Even within his, his, very, his very self, his very being, God is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within that trinity is this perfect image of authority. Because God the Father does have authority over the Son. Jesus walking on the earth comes under the authority of his dad. He came, you read in John, how many times do you read in John? I'm here to do what my dad sent me to do. And I love it. There's nothing better. And I actually want that for you guys as well. God's rule and authority is loving and his commands were for blessing so that people could live freely in a well-protected environment. Not so he could punish them. There's a, uh, there's a quote here from a guy called Ted Tripp. There's a uh, particular book that I've read that my wife and I have read um, bits and pieces and, and uh, we just work through together um, because we need help <laughs> as parents. And uh, this guy, Ted Tripp, wrote a book called Shepherding the Child's Heart. And uh, in this book, he just lays out this foundation, this amazing foundation for how we can actually be as parents, how we can work uh, with our children and uh, work in our children's lives so that this ultimate goal would be fulfilled. And, uh, and this is what he said. Jesus is an example of this. The one who commands you, the one who possesses all authority, came as a servant. He is a ruler who serves. He is also a servant who rules. He exercises sovereign authority that is kind. He was in complete authority over Satan and over demons. And you see that in the, in the places in the Bible where he comes to people and he casts out demons and demons run scared because he has absolute authority over them. He has authority over the disciples when he walks onto that beach and says, come and follow me. They just drop everything and follow him. What's the go with that? That's, that's crazy. So he exercises sovereign authority, but in doing this, he's kind. Authority exercised on behalf of his subjects. In John 13, Jesus, who knew that the Father had put all things under his authority, puts on a towel, gets down on his hands and knees, and washes the disciples' feet. A man in absolute authority, but he comes serving. As his people submit to his authority, they are empowered to live freely in the freedom of the gospel. So when we talk about obedience as a mother and a father, and even as children, we actually talk about it within this authority uh, that God has in place. And we don't talk about it as being dictators and getting what we want 
as parents. As I said before, that's the temptation. It is the temptation. When we get weak and when we get tired, it's the temptation. Just do what I say because I told you to do it. It's not, it's not having authority out of love. So children, obey your parents. The other interesting thing about uh, this particular part of the verse is it just says, for this is right. It's actually the right thing to do to obey your parents. And even if there's no other reason, even if there's nothing else outside of that, it's just right. And you can see this. This is the foundation of cultures and societies around the world. It's not just the Western world. Parents want their children to obey because it's just right. It's actually really healthy. And whether you're a child of two years old or whether you're a child of uh, 10 years old, whether you're a child of 17 years old, uh, it's just right for you to obey mum and dad, for you to do the right thing. Keeps on going. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. For our children to understand authority and to love, uh, sorry, to love and to obey their parents, they must see their parents in the way they handle authority and speak about God's authority. So the way parents honour God and live under his authority will be called by children. When you talk to your children about honouring mummy and daddy, and it should be a, a constant conversation, this is what God wants for you. This is what's best for you, for you to honour mummy and daddy. And when you obey mummy and daddy, it's going to go really well for you because God promises that. But the way parents honour God is actually probably more important than teaching your children to honour you. Because they'll see the way you submit to God and the way you honour him, the way you worship him, the way you come to church, to be part of a community, the way you serve people. They see all this of you honouring God they go, wow, God is a God to be honoured. I just better get on board with this. This is great. This is the way life was meant to be. So they see their parents and they want to image that. They want to uh, follow after that because you're actually a man or a woman under authority and you love honouring that. You love honouring God. Whether parents are intentional or not, children are learning from you for both positive and negative. That's the hard thing, isn't it? As parents, you know that you sin. And you know that you don't do things well the way things, way things are meant to be. And children learn from that just as much, unfortunately, as they learn from uh, your attempts at doing things really well. And this is probably where the gospel is uh, most poignant. When I think about it in my life, when uh, my daughter hears me put her to bed and leaves the door open because that's the way she likes to sleep. Daddy, can you leave the door open? Uh, and I go out and I plonk down in front of the TV and I turn on the TV and just have the TV blurry. It's not loud, but it's enough. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a sound. I was challenged by this when uh, I walked out of my daughter's room and uh, she called out to me. She goes, Daddy. I said, yeah, it's happening. What's up? You going to watch TV now? I'm like, yeah. She knows this is part of my routine. So she's learning that in my downtime, TV is the most important thing to me. Being entertained is actually, actually what's really important for me. And if this is a normal routine, because this had happened uh, over a number of, number of weeks, and uh, this was obviously her just going, oh, okay, this is part of life now. This is what daddy and mummy do when they put me to bed. It's the end of the day, so I'm just going to go watch TV. <laughs> so they're seeing what's most important to me. They're seeing what I value most. <clears throat> 
If Sundays are the only day where I go to church and sing and listen to the Bible, and every other day is used for education, sport, career, entertainment, and leisure, that will be displaying and teaching children what is actually most important to you. So important question, I think, as I, as I was reading about this, an important question or a helpful question is, what actually do you want most for your children? And what do you see, if you were to ask your children, what do you think is most important to daddy and mummy? I wonder what they'd say. I find it, uh, I find it challenging, but it's not the end of it. <clears throat> Imagine your child, uh, before I get there, his parents make it their goal to radically follow Christ and love him and serve him, then, they, then their children will actually catch this vision as you live this out yourself. Christ is certainly the central factor in seeing this happen in their salvation. However, parents are given the inside job of showing children the sheer joy of laying down their lives and their priorities and taking up their cross and following him and his priorities. To do this, it teaches by example to our children what is most important. So when they see me living the life of a disciple and actually taking sheer joy in that, delighting in that, and when I'm suffering, when they see me praying and crying out to God because I'm in a deep place of hurt and pain right now, they're going to catch on to that. They're, not going to, they're also going to catch on if in my deep pain and my deep agony I run to the fridge and get food. They're also going to catch on if I, uh, in, in the most difficult times, um, if I run to other people and have a gossip or a win session, they're going to see that, okay, so you deal with difficulty and pain by complaining and whinging. So they're learning. They're sponging up all the time. <clears throat> so what do you want for your children? How this is answered will reveal what is most important. If you want them to radically follow Christ and love him and serve him, then they will catch this vision as, as you live this yourself. Christ is... I've just read that. My apologies taking up your cross and following him because it's right, because it's good. Because this is, so, this is the central factor of your life. Jesus rules and has authority in my life. And I love following him. It's, it's the best. It's hard and it costs, but man, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. So imagine your child at 25. This helps in, uh, in actually working out what you want for your children. What do you imagine them doing? Succeeding in their career, buying a house, getting married, and dutifully attending church each Sunday morning? Or do you imagine them as a gospel worker? Planting a church, serving the community, glorifying God in the workplace, going overseas, telling people about Jesus, and doing whatever job best enables them to do these things. So is your top priority for your children to be well set up and have all the goods and to have lots of toys and, uh, and, and to be good sportsmen and to be top of their class? Or is your top priority for your children that they would honour God and that they would love being under his authority? That one day God would save them and God would make them his own and they would become followers of Jesus themselves. Because all the other stuff actually comes in underneath that. Having, being top of the class, that's not wrong. Being a good sportsman, that's not necessarily wrong. And they're good values, they're, good, they're important things for you to work towards with your kids. But uh, if that becomes the overarching, becomes, it becomes messed up. <clears throat> matters as a young man or woman as you begin to decide what matters most. We have a front row here 
of uh, year 11 and 12 students. We've got students around the place and children. This matters about what you want most. Because your parents have, have wanted what's best for you. In most circumstances, your parents have wanted what's best for you. But then there comes a point where you need to work out what's most important for me. So if most important to you is getting through a uni degree and earning big bucks, then uh, perhaps you need to reevaluate the priority. Priority of coming under God's rule and God's authority. Have a look at this John Piper quote. Paul says, Don't provoke your children to anger. What does he mean? He doesn't mean don't cross their will. He doesn't mean don't deny their desires. He means don't cross their will for no good purpose. Don't deny their desires without making it a part of some great vision of God's purposes in the world. Show your children something great to live for so that when you cross their will and deny their desire, it's because you're fitting, fitting them for some great purpose of God. Can you see the big vision here? Can you see the big idea that all these things of having authority and, uh, and dealing with discipline and instructing your children, they actually fit into this big picture. God's up to something big and you get to be part of that. And it's going to be good when you come and be part of that. And here's why I don't want you to do this. Here's why uh, I, I'm disciplining you in this way. Because I love you. I don't want you to understand what it means to come under God's discipline. Because he loves you even more than daddy loves you or mummy loves you. <clears throat> so fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. When dads are just annoying and the children are clearly not pleased and frustrated, kids get provoked to anger. When dads don't love their wives but mistreat them, kids get provoked to anger, whether it's inside or whether it comes out on the outside. When dads are angry all the time, kids get provoked to anger. When dads walk out on the family, kids get provoked to anger. When dads play too much and build up toys for themselves, rather than playing with their kids and building toys with them, kids get provoked to anger. When dads just fulfill their duties of providing without loving and knowing their families, spending time to invest into the family and not just into possessions for their family, kids get aggravated. This verse speaks to fathers specifically because they have a special and primary responsibility for raising their children. And in our society and in our culture, uh, we have girls' getaways because dads didn't do a great job. Because husbands and fathers didn't do a great job. This is why we have such an epidemic in our culture. Uh, my mum and dad went to a uh, meeting the other day from Melinda, Melinda Tankard Rice, who is a, uh, a, an activist in Australia for... Uh, just desexualizing culture and, uh, and de-objectifying women uh, because that just tends to be what happens. And the big deal is, is that that's probably happened because men haven't done their job and haven't taken their responsibility well as dads. So kids get provoked to anger. Let me uh, try and help you to sort through what is that people get angry. We've talked about this here at the project before and uh, talked about when people get angry that it's actually because there's other desires that are ruling their heart at that time. And I'm going to uh, split away from just dads at the moment. We'll come back to that to all people. Because children, when you get angry, there's something else. It's a, it's a strong desire that's ruling your heart. Turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 1. 
James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Children are provoked to anger by their parents usually because there's some other desire ruling their hearts instead of the desire to glorify God. Instead of this overarching big vision picture, uh, this desire to honor Him and to, to come under His authority, instead of that, there's some selfish desire that's ruling them at that point. And that typically is why they get angry and why they start, that there's these arguments within families. Some of the ruling desires could be these. Perhaps it's that you want quiet and children interrupting that. Uh, I'm guilty of this. I just want quiet and peace. And children are noisy and they interrupt that and they don't give me what I want. So at times I get frustrated. And instead of loving them and, and disciplining them and showing them, uh, showing them the big picture, I want what I want. And so I get what I want by somehow manipulating my child's behavior. Whether it's discipline, whether it's getting angry, whether it's uh, raising my voice, whatever it is. I want quiet. That's a ruling desire. Perhaps you're embarrassed about the way your child is behaving in front of other people. This destroys a kid because they never keep up to the standard. If the, if the overarching, the ruling desire is that I can't be embarrassed, I've got to have a perfect kid wherever I go, then it destroys the kid and it usually means there's a whole bunch of tension because kids misbehave and they do it in public in the most inopportune times <laughs> and it gets a little frustrating if that's the ruling desire of your heart. <clears throat> Perhaps it's power and control in your household. If that's what I want, then I'm going to get it. And I'm going to misuse my authority and abuse my authority so I can get what I want. Perhaps it is rest and the children are waking up early or getting in late. I had a smirk there in the morning. Children getting up early. I need more sleep. Be quiet. Lie down. All these things, man. I, I identify with these uh, myself. So I'm not just saying them as a preacher and telling everyone else this is what you're doing wrong. Uh, perhaps it's rest, perhaps it's your child's success and when they're not succeeding you drive them and push them so you get your successful child. <clears throat> I mention all these because I've been guilty, guilty of having these ruling desires and the list can go on, can't it? When you work out and when you stop in that moment when you're about to discipline your child and you're feeling frustrated and probably angry and they're probably getting a bit angry and they're getting provoked to anger, if you stop and go, what's actually ruling my heart right now? Is my heart being ruled by a desire that wants to honour God and please Him? And that He would be glorified in our family? Or is my heart's desire that uh, I want power or these other ruling desires that come in? And I think this changes the way that we actually deal with each other. We're a family. The, God, the church of God is called a family. We actually get mentioned towards each other as being brothers and sisters. Okay? And so this happens within, uh, within the church family. It's happened with Pete and myself and Diff. There's been arguments that have arisen. 
And it takes, uh, sometimes it takes me a long time to work out what's the ruling desire in my heart. So this is applicable not just for a parent and a child. This is applicable for any person sitting here when you love and follow Jesus. This gets down to the very root cause of the problem. What's the desire that's ruling in my heart right now? The interesting thing is that none of these, or some of these are actually all right desires. To have rest is a good desire. To be in authority within your family is actually a good desire because that's the way God designed it. To be a parent who's in authority. To have children who are succeeding, that's a good desire. But when it takes over and becomes this ruling desire, it becomes an idol. And it's not going to be an idol that serves you well. It's going to be an idol that destroys you and probably destroys the people around you as well. Then we come back. If the heart is undivided in its allegiance to God and His glory, your response in a situation becomes calm and loving discipline. And when the intentions of your child's heart are what, what you are dealing with, your child is no longer just changing behaviour to stay in your good books. They're actually realising how to deal with their own sin and what comes out by actually digging deep inside to their heart and dealing with this heart issue. And this is where this guy, uh, Ted Tripp, comes in and he says, parents, a really important analogy is that you're actually meant to be a shepherd for your children's heart. And a shepherd leads their sheep. Tenderly, with discipline at times, but he leads them. And this is exactly what we do. We want to lead and shepherd our children's hearts. Not as a dictator or an authoritarian who abuses it. Not as someone who steps away and just wants to be their friend. No, we have God-given authority and responsibility to lovingly lead them. They would see a much grander vision. So discipline is no longer focused on your own selfish motives. They're actually focused on God's agenda which is a child who delights to know him, love him, and follow him. There were two posts uh, that, that were written in a particular book that I was reading um, on gospel-centered families. And here's what, they, uh, here's what they came to. And it's not there. Let me read it to you. Here are the two posts on a Christian parenting bulletin board. It's great to be a Christian parent. And I thank God for my children that their parents are not like others, immoral, selfish, and lazy. We have such a great time when we start the day with family devotions. We never miss a day, even if we're on the car ferry or at the airport. Our home is a haven of purity. And we do so, for, so much for missions. Our children know the names of every missionary we support. We alternate learning their names with learning chapters of Romans at bedtime. Mustache, thank you, Lord. Here's the second one. Lord, I feel useless. Please have mercy on my kids because with a parent like me, they sure need it. <laughs> so you have these two extremes, right? The parent who's got it all together, the parent who is almost untouchable because uh, they, they know what they're doing as a parent. And I can list all the right things that I'm doing, the important things that I'm doing because I want to actually be, appear to be a really good parent. And that's really right for me. And then you've got this other one, this other extreme, where they just get to the absolute, absolute point of despair and go, oh man, I need help. <laughs> I'm guessing my way through this and it's not going well at times. In fact, I'm going so far deep into it, I don't know where to turn. Maybe I'm going to turn to alcohol. Maybe I'm going to turn to, uh, who knows, I mean, the list could go on. And what you do with Jesus at this point is critical. Because when you realise as a parent 
you can either be like that first parent who, who uh, is like a Pharisee. It lists off all these things that make me such a righteous and good person. Or you become like the tax collector. There's a story in the Bible that Jesus used, this parable where uh, this Pharisee was up and he was praying, saying, man, I'm such a good Pharisee. I tithe out of my spice rack and I, uh, I, I am, I'm a generous guy and I know the Bible and I'm really good. And this is how he's praying to God, God, thank you for making me so good. And then this tax collector comes down and he gets on his hands and knees, beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need you. And this is the difference between what we do with Jesus and his gospel. As parents, even as children, when you become exasperated and, you're, and your children become exasperated, it's actually grace through Jesus that enters in and redeems the situation. It's bringing the gospel to bear on your own failures. If when we fail we feel condemned to begin to pay for our own sin by sinking ourselves into a pit of despair for a time so that we can do some time for the crime, we're actually saying to Jesus, Jesus, what you did wasn't enough. I've got to do a little bit more to suffer a bit more so that I can pay for my sin of being such a failure as a parent. Or we can actually declare our own righteousness and saying, man, Jesus, thank you for making me such a good parent. I do all these things so well. Man, I'm just, I'm just going so well. And you declare that you make yourself righteous by doing such a good job as, as a parent. Or you make yourself righteous for doing such a good job as a child. Because I obey mummy and daddy all the time. I do the right thing every time. You miss your fails. So you've got these two extremes. If you're not applying the gospel, it certainly won't be displaying grace to your children. It actually begins in your heart. One of the chapters in this book, I think, was uh, titled appropriately, Disciplining Your Own Heart. <laughs> you know how it talks about disciplining your child? No, discipline your own heart. Come to your own heart and go, what's the ruling desires right now? Am I actually applying the gospel and realizing my failures as a parent and depending upon the grace of God to change me and to actually move me towards being a good parent? Am I coming as a child and going, ah, oh, Man, I depend upon the grace of God. Jesus, I sinned right now and I got angry at mum and dad. I didn't honour them. I failed in being obedient to mum and dad. They asked me five times before I went and did a job. Jesus, I need to depend on your grace to change me and to give me a hard attitude that wants to honour mum and dad because, first of all, I want to honour you because it's going to go well for me. We're not applying the gospel and we certainly won't be displaying it. When you become a Christian, think of it this way. You confess your sins, turn back to God and trust in his finished work and the work of Jesus on your behalf for forgiveness. And this is the continuation. You know how you get saved? You become a Christian? Well, you're always being saved for the rest of your life. You get saved, there's a point, there's a point in your life where Jesus comes and he takes your heart and changes you and gives you new desires that would love him and honour him and desire him. And then he's continuing to change you. So you get saved and you continue to be changed. And you continue to be saved by the gospel. <clears throat> in applying the gospel in your own failures as a parent, you become a conduit for the gospel to your own children. When you discipline once, it is finished. Let it be finished. The same way that when Jesus forgives you, it's finished. It's done. And you depend upon his grace 
for, you to for him to change you. Don't hang out on them. Don't hold out on them and say, ah, you're going to pay for that. I'm not going to give you what you want till tomorrow. You can go to bed without dinner. <laughs> Whatever. You hold out on them because you want them to pay just a little bit more because what Jesus did, did wasn't enough. <clears throat> Same way God forgives you. Perhaps the reason you're not able to forgive your child for embarrassing you or getting you angry is because you haven't first received of God's forgiveness and allowed it to be fully at work in your own life, freeing you from the sin and its guilt and changing you into the image of Christ. And get this point right. You being a good parent does not save your child. The grace of God saves your child. You being a bad parent, yeah, you'll be called to responsibility for that. But you being a bad parent won't mean that your child won't be saved because it's the grace of God. So we take that and we say, man, I'm not the one who saves my child. So me having this perfect expectation on my child will not save them. It will destroy them. It will squash them. But that's not unredeemable. So we ought to work hard to be witnesses for our children to the delight of loving and following Jesus. But it will never bring our children salvation. It's God who ultimately works in their heart for salvation. So when it comes to actually your child loving and following Jesus, you pray. You ask Jesus, Jesus, help me, help my child. I want to see you save them one day. I want to see them following and loving you because you've changed their heart. You've changed their desires so that they want you. It's not me forcing my child to love God. It's me showing them how good it is to love God. We come to this final part. Dads, fathers, <clears throat> as I said at the start, uh, there, there is a great need within our culture for fathers and for good fathers. Fathers who are leading, fathers who are loving, fathers who are disciplining, fathers who are taking authority in their homes, not because they uh, need a position of power, but because they love their family and they want to lead them. They want to take them somewhere. Interestingly, uh, interestingly, in our culture, being a, a, a parent, a, sorry, a teacher at a school, uh, it's oftentimes that you hear parents coming in and uh, unfortunately placing the blame for their children's behaviour and because the child didn't learn wholly and solely on the teacher. Now there could be some responsibility there, and I'm not abdicating that, but it's it's unfortunate that our children and the raising of our children has tended to go towards an institution. So from early on, I want to put them in childcare so they know how to socialise with somebody. I want to put them in, uh, in preschool so they know how to build blocks and so they know how to play, so they know how to be creative. And the whole sole primary teaching is on somebody else rather than on the dad and the mum. And the Bible assumes that a mum and a dad are actually going to be teachers. Not qualified teachers. Not, they don't have to go to uni to do it. But they're going to study and they're going to work out, I need to raise my child. And I'm going to work out how best to teach them. And a dad particularly has primary responsibility of this. So the teaching of children for many today has been passed on inappropriately to institutions. It's not the school's job to raise your child. It's not the school's job to raise my child. It's my job primarily. And I place them within a school that I agree with, that I've worked out. What are they teaching? How are they teaching? How are they disciplining? 
Because my responsibility is to look after my kid and raise my kid, whether it's a boy or a girl. And so you have conversations with your wife about education. Maybe you do a bit of research about what a school stands for. What are, what are the expectations within that school? And I'll proceed it by this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So God is pictured in the Bible as a father. And as a father who is loving and who disciplines, and he comes with authority and cuts across wills, not because he gets to, not because he's a harsh dictator, but because he loves. And he wants, to, wants people to come into fullness and wholeness. And so as a father, and this, is, this has been such a strong change point in my own life, that as I become a dad, and as I have two children of my own, I suddenly realise and my eyes become opened to what it's like to be a child of the Father God. And I see the way that God deals with me, and I go, man, I need to be a dad like that to my own children. And so being a good dad actually comes from being a good son, a son that loves his dad in heaven. And so I want to proceed with that. You learn to be the best dad, not because of your dad, even though he might have been the best dad, but ultimately because of God the Father in heaven. So when you want to work out how am I disciplining, how am I loving, how am I investing in my child, you go to God. How did God invest in his people Israel as a father? What did God do to uh, redeem his children and make them his own? He sacrificed. He gave of his own son. So you work out how to be a dad. <clears throat> Here's some ways that you could do that, just some practical ways. Engage with every part of your child's life. Um, sometimes it's easy as a dad to, uh, to disengage so that when you, so you think, yep, I've worked hard, I've done my work throughout the day, and I'll come home and I'm just going to slump down and uh, sit in front of the TV. I'm just going to uh, switch off because I need some quiet time. And maybe you can work that out within the family culture and within what happens every day. But uh, may I encourage you and may I exhort you, dads, to be engaged. When you walk in that door, you're engaged. You're on. I heard Pete talk about the way that he uh, walks in the door of his house and, uh, and he's just on. He knows that whatever day he's had, he just knows I've got to be on when I walk in that door. Because his boys are going to be up for a rumble and a play and a shot with a, with a stinking Nerf gun and an army fight, and whatever else is going on, and going to rugby league up the back, and riding the motorbikes, and whatever, you just know you're on. And, uh, and I think that's a beautiful picture um, of a dad who's engaged. So you get to engage with every part of your children's life. You get to help them with homework. You get to pull up and go, how can I help you, son? How can I help you work out this maths? And you're helping them to see this becomes part of a greater vision. It becomes part of a greater picture than just doing your homework for your teacher. <clears throat> so engage with your, every part of your child's life. Knowing them emotionally, how they're going emotionally. Coming to them and teaching them. Particular ways to do that. Teach them to love God and his word and his rule. So you could read the Bible every day. Uh, you could come at night and uh, gather the family together because it's your responsibility, your responsibility to lead your wife, lead your children. So you gather everyone together and you say, come, let's read the Bible together. And you have a children's Bible or a, uh, you know, work out whatever Bible is appropriate for your children. 
if it's a youth or if it's a teenager, work out, how am I going to lead my son and my daughter in uh, reading the Bible? And when you do it, and this is something I have been challenged by as I've prepared this message, uh, oftentimes when I teach my children the Bible, I expect them just to sit there and listen. And I go, man, why aren't they doing what I want them to do? So this desire that's ruling in my heart, I say, Ugh, I'm getting so angry and frustrated. I just want them to listen to the Bible. This is good for you. Why don't you listen? <laughs> so I get frustrated and annoyed. And, uh, and all the while, I actually, the desire is that I want them to love the Bible. So how am I going to do that in such a way that would engage their imagination? That when we read the stories of the Bible, they see pictures and they want to act it out. So let them act it out. Get some, get some stuff together so that they can put dress-ups on. So one can be David and the other can be Goliath and he can beat Goliath. <laughs> so one can be Esther. My daughter loves the story of Esther. She uh, has a VeggieTales DVD of the story of Esther. And uh, she just loves the story of Esther because she's a queen. And the, uh, and, the, uh, and the king calls her Queenie Poo. Like, that's the VeggieTales thing. She loves it. So how am I working out as a dad that my kid just doesn't have to sit on my knee and listen to me? How am I going to make it as engaging as possible? Because I want them to love God and love the Bible. I don't want them to hate it. I don't want them to be bored of it. I want them to love it and be engaged with it. Dads, take time to plan it out, work it out, so you can have the best times. Singing together. If you've got a singing bone in your body, sing together. If you've got a CD player, put a CD on. Worship Jesus together. Work out ways to do that, whether it's uh, at a two-year-old level or at a... uh, 15, 16, 17-year-old level. If you want your kids to love God and enjoy being part of his community, going to church isn't a drag. You don't have to wake up and go, oh, do we feel like going to church today? They're learning from you. They're learning that church isn't all that important. Being part of a community, that's not all that important. (laughs) But if they're seeing you, man, I'm just looking forward to going worshipping Jesus today. Or man, I'm finding it hard to even desire that this morning. Give me a new heart, Jesus. Give me a change in my desires so that I'd want to go. And they see you either way, you're working out, man, this is what's most important to us. This is what's most important to my family. <clears throat> Help them memorize scripture. Phoebe, I, I'm blown away. This idea that a child is not learning from the day that they're born. They are learning. They are sponging up. It's amazing. I'm blown away by Phoebe uh, and the way that she memorizes things. She has an amazing memory. She'll bring up things from like three weeks ago. We're lying in bed and uh, suddenly she'll just bring up a story that happened like three weeks ago. And you're going, you remember that? <laughs> Seriously, how do you remember that? And then uh, there's this, some people love this guy, some people hate him. I don't, like, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but Colin Buchanan, he does an amazing job at taking scripture and putting music to it so that kids remember it. So all the time, trust in the Lord with all your heart. She's saying a scripture and she's singing it and having fun doing it. So there's plenty out there. Particularly Colin Buchanan just does a really good job, I think. So she's memorizing scripture, but it's not like a forced memorization because you have to, because it's your duty to. You need to memorize scripture. Sad, it, it becomes a sad thing even at school here when uh, scripture memory becomes this uh, disciplined thing well, you've got to learn your scripture memory and I'll give you a prize at the end. All right? And kids are just, kids are just going around so they can get the prize. <laughs> they're getting around and they're getting the memory, scripture memory, sweet, tick that off, tick that off. But it's not taking root in their heart. It's not taking grounding in their heart. 
And so instead, work out a way, dads, that you can lead your, lead your children in memorizing scripture so that they would have a heart that delights in it. <clears throat> Integrating in all of life, praying all the time. Praying all the time is uh, oftentimes I catch myself out just praying in the mornings, praying at night with my kids, and that's it. And not praying any other time. There's a, there's a particular scripture that talks about praying continually. So take every opportunity to pray. Uh, one a poignant moment, and I'm not holding myself up as a, uh, as a bigwig here. You've heard my failures as a father. But uh, it was an opportunity the other day. My daughter just wanted to go for a walk. This was like 6 o'clock. It was that smoky evening. I don't know if you remember it. It was quite a warm evening. It wasn't freezing cold. So we could go out for a walk at like 6.30. So I said, right, okay, let's go for a walk. So we just go for a wander. She held my hand, and uh, we just wandered around the neighborhood. It was at that point I was like, right, how can I? This is a perfect opportunity. She's right here. She's quiet. She just wants to go for a walk with Daddy. So we go for a walk, and, uh, and suddenly I just thought, let's pray for our neighbors because we're walking around our neighbourhood. And so we took the opportunity and just started praying for our neighbours. Because we know some of them, we don't know some of them, and we just, we just prayed together. And so uh, you're praying all the time and integrating all of life. When you go, I'll, I'm going to use Pete again. He gave me this analogy one time. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. I'm not holding you up, man. I'm just, it's good, good to learn. So uh, Pete goes to the shopping centre and uh, there's that, the, those machines. You know those machines you put money in and you use the joystick to try and get the arm to go down and pick up the toy? And you know you're going to waste money. Like how often have you ever got the toy out of that stupid machine? <laughs> the guy who made that's a millionaire because all he gets is the money and never loses his stuff. So, uh, <clears throat> so, he, so Pete, his kids asked him one time, can I, go, can, I, can I put money in? Can I get one of those toys? And Pete took the opportunity and went, no, it's not a wise way to use your money. You put money in and you don't get anything back. That's a stupid investment. <laughs> That's dumb. That's not worth it. Let's work out a way we can do it. And so, perfect opportunity to integrate. Here's what God's standard is. This is foolishness. You should do what God's standard is because it's going to be good for you. So you're taking every opportunity. You're seeing opportunities as you drive home and see the sunset. Man, have you seen that sunset? Look how creative God is. Imagine him being the painter back there and just painting this amazing sunset. So take every opportunity to integrate into all of life. Uh, one, one thing that I've yet to start um, in our family is reading Proverbs. One thing we got out of the uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart book is a uh, suggestion to read Proverbs every day. Because Proverbs have this practical application that could be used in any day, any day of the week. I've heard some people say there's 31 Proverbs, so you can read one every day of the year, every day of the month. You can't miss it. And so uh, there's an opportunity for you to uh, take Proverbs. And because Proverbs are so intensely practical and they apply so uh, intensely to situations, what's a, what's a fool? When you see a fool, are you going to go and make friends with a fool? What's a wise friend? What does a good friend look like? How, am I gonna, how do I use my money foolish, foolishly? What's going to happen if, I, uh, if I'm a fool to my parents? It's going to cause them anguish. It's going to cause them angst. And so Proverbs is just this rolling out of wisdom. And you're teaching the kids the wisdom of God. Opportunity. Uh, pursuing a biblical vision for manhood and womanhood. And finally being honourable. It's, it's interesting that uh, we... 
might expect dads that, uh, that our kids will just honor us because we're their dad. And we may not actually pursue being honorable as their dads. And so as God changes your heart, as God works in your heart and teaches you what it means to be a man, as you sit at the 30 on a Friday night and you're working out how, how can I be the man that God's called me to be, you've actually become honorable. So your kids see you and go, I wouldn't want to honor that joker. Seriously. <laughs> well, look at the pain he's caused in my life. I'm not going to honor that. That makes a child's job of honoring their parents very difficult. But if you're pursuing, as God is honorable, you pursue his image, so you become honorable. And your children have a very easy job of honoring their dad. I love the way he provides for our family. love the way he leads our family, loves our family, invests in our family, takes time with, our children, with, with us as children, takes time with mummy to spend time with her and invest in her. Leads, makes decisions. Love that. I want to honour that. That's the sort of dad I want to be when I'm older. It's the sort of husband I want when I'm older. Be honourable as men. And so, uh, in conclusion, I'll finish up. In conclusion, uh, <clears throat> the Bible calls us to a high standard. And as I was saying before, even as children, even as children sitting here, the Bible calls you to a high standard of obedience and honouring of your parents. The Bible calls parents to a high standard of responsibility. But the Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that without helping us. And so where you felt convicted today, where you felt challenged today, my hope is that you would turn to the gospel and that your family, your home, would be a hub for the gospel. Because we're going to sin against each other. And we're going to sin by not doing things that we were meant to do. And so you come before your family and you repent. Because ultimately that's what you want your children to see. I want you to see you f- them f- they want to see you following Jesus. Maybe there's issues in your family that haven't been repented of. Maybe there's issues uh, as brothers and sisters and as children and parents of this unresolved conflict. But it probably takes one, just like it took Jesus, to go and actually repent. To ask forgiveness for, the own, for your own things that you knew that the desires were ruling over you that weren't a healthy desire to honour God. So uh, come to the gospel. Repent. Come back to know the true God and the true Father of all things. So let's pray. Well, God, this Father's Day, it's uh, for some a painful experience. As I just spoke to someone this morning, it's hard because Dad isn't around anymore. So God, you're a good dad and you're a perfect dad. And when we come to you, we actually, uh, we actually get two dads. We have an earthly dad and a, and a heavenly dad. And God, I pray that uh, you would reveal yourself more clearly to dads here in the building today. More clearly to dads here at the project. So that there would be dads who would be honorable and children who would love to submit and obey their parents. And where it doesn't happen, God because it's bound not to happen, where there's disobedience, where there's arguing, where there's fighting, God, lead them to the gospel. By your Holy Spirit, convict mums and dads of their sins so that they would repent and they would lead their children in repentance so that ultimately we see you're the most important thing here. need to get right to the root of our issues, God, of our, of our hearts as dads, as mums and even as children because ultimately honouring you and glorifying you is what's most important. Because it's going to go well for us, God. 
When you rule and when you have authority in our church, when you rule and have authority in our families, God, you provide blessing. So God, uh, change our hearts. Continue to change our hearts because we need it changed. Amen.